Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, hello, everyone. I hope all around the world everybody's doing great today. I have a guest in the studio today, Dr. Delia Bakeman. Hi, Delia. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here. And you are an assistant professor in the Behavioral Neurology Department at CU Anschutz. We call it University of Colorado Hospital, but now it's CU Anschutz. And you are a you have a dual specialty so you have neurology and psychiatry in your wheelhouse right absolutely and you studied at University of Massachusetts Okay, in Worcester, Massachusetts, but you're a Colorado native and you've come back to work. Yay. Yay. (laughs) That's awesome. So, well, first of all, welcome to the show, but what made you decide to choose two specialties that are already kind of intense? (laughs) Absolutely. So... To me, it was really difficult in my medical training because I kept seeing patients who had neurologic or psychiatric conditions and were divided that way, but then finding out that they really had both and seeing the way that we kind of arbitrarily try to cut the brain in half and say, this is psychiatry and this is neurology, when really, if we think about the brain holistically, you know, I feel like we should be trained in both specialties. So actually, originally in... Europe and when some of these specialties started, they were actually people were trained in both. That was kind of the original way that people learned neuropsychiatry together, and okay. then the specialties kind of diverted over time. But um, I think it just makes all the difference in the world when you can see a person and really holistically try to understand, you know, how is their mood, their experience, their life affected where they are now, and then how does that play a role in their neurology and what's happening in their brains. I think that's brilliant because we see so many people that do have something else going on. And we're trying to figure this out. And it's not always easy to figure these things out. (laughs) So is there anybody else doing this at UCH? So we have um, in our history at UCH, there have been multiple people trained in both specialties There aren't many spots for this, so normally there are four openings a year around the country for this dual training where you get the full residency in both neurology and psychiatry. So we're a small group. You know, there are about 300 to 400 of us in the United States. We actually meet at this great conference every year, and everybody knows each other. We're all in one room. Um, So you might hear it's confusing as a patient because you might hear that someone specialized in behavioral neurology or did a neuropsychiatry fellowship, but um, it's a little more unusual to do what some of us have done and do that full dual training, which is the full six years of both residencies together. Have you always been an overachiever? A little bit, <laughs> but I think it was just too hard. It was just too hard to choose, and, and, and it made all the difference in the world. I just had wonderful mentors and 
Um, it's a it's a really amazing community. I think it's almost we joke about it being its own religion, almost of just a way of believing that the brain is really completely interconnected, and that that's how we should look at patients too. Well, I think it's interesting, and we'll get into it a bit, but. It's interesting that most people with Alzheimer's or Lewy body, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, those are the folks I work with and you do too, will have depression. They could be bipolar. There could be a lot of different things going on. And like you said, it's very hard to split that brain into different segments and say, okay, we're siloing this out over here and we're Mm -hmm. siloing that out over there. It just really doesn't work that way. Absolutely. And we know that a lot of these same circuits in the brain that lead to some of these types of dementia, you know, are the same circuits that we see in our psychiatric condition. So there's a lot of overlay, even things like um, in the, again, historically, like multiple sclerosis actually used to be um, completely treated by psychiatry because we hadn't had imaging to be able to show spots of brain inflammation in the brain or in the spine. And then when we advanced in imaging, we realized, oh, there are these spots that we can see, and it switched to neurology. But people with multiple sclerosis, about 60 to 70% of them also have primary psychiatric conditions as well. And that's just really true for a lot of our shared conditions, all of the dementias you mentioned, and traumatic brain injury, a lot of the other neurologic conditions. There's just such an overlap. Well, you bring up something that has always baffled me, and I've talked to Dr. Huntington Potter about it on many occasions, and also Samantha Holden, Dr. Samantha Holden. Uh, My mom was diagnosed as having hippocampal sclerosis. Mm -hmm. And you were just talking about multiple sclerosis. She didn't have multiple sclerosis. Yeah. And her symptoms mimicked Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. 100%. Mm -hmm. But she had no beta amyloid in her system at all. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. And the way that, you know, some of these, again, we're still learning, you know, I think what's so hard is that really in medicine, we have to be humble and say that we're making strides in so many areas, but but that there's so much we still don't know and understand. And we try to make, again, these lines and divisions when really, you know, is is it best serving the person, the family, the community, some of these lines that we draw? Mm-hmm. I understand that, and and I was going to bring this a question up about that here in a little bit. Yeah. I think I'll save it for for that time. But you have said that your main focus is in the realm of serving traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. in addition to everything else you just said, <laughs> right? So, do you work with brain injuries from like? accidents or the CTE, which is the more chronic, you know, sort of sports uh, related, as people know it, um, type of injuries or vascular, you know, and so forth. So what does that mean to you about about working with people with traumatic brain injury and how does it relate you know, totally to the neurology? I know that has to do with the brain and what happens to the brain, but what does it mean to you as a physician? Sure. So um, to the first part of your question, I deal with the whole the whole realm. So all the way from, you know, one, some, one concussion that somebody might have all the way to the most severe traumatic brain injury, which normally is someone who's, you know, been in a significant accident and has a large amount of blood or scar tissue within the brain itself and has, you know, significant impairment with 
language, memory, cognition. They might even have motor skills like weakness in the arms or legs, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to give you a sense of some of the range of brain injuries that I see, I work with veterans who have been victims of blast injuries or gunshot wounds. I work with a lot of people who have had blunt trauma from things like falling off ladders, motor vehicle and motorcycle accidents. Um, I work with athletes who have had, like you mentioned, repetitive head injuries, you know, some of these thousands of impacts that can then have later consequences of mm-hmm. memory changes, things like that in the brain. Um, so really the whole the whole spectrum, there's also a, a different realm of brain injury called hypoxic brain injury where, say, you've had a heart attack or something's happened that's led to lack, lack of oxygen to the brain. Uh-huh. You can have an impact to the brain called an, a traumatic brain injury that's just a different type. Um, so, you know, see the whole realm. The reason that I chose traumatic brain injury is to me it's just the perfect use of neuropsychiatry because people who have this range of injuries have really the whole spectrum of, you know, a lot of cognitive and memory troubles. They have a lot of personality changes and psychiatric concerns of nightmares, trauma, depression, anxiety, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then there are a lot of other neurologic pieces that might come too, like seizures, weakness, speech changes, things like that. So it really um, gives me the chance to use the whole realm of my experience to, to you know, work with this population of people. That's really a wide range. And it makes me wonder if that might be why you as a physician and me trying to help people in their homes, um, we struggle with what exactly is causing the symptoms mm-hmm. that this person has. Could it have been a head injury prior? Um, And that doesn't necessarily always mean that it's going to show up on an MRI or or something like that as you're trying to diagnose these things, right? So that's really – that's difficult, I would think. It can be really tough. And I think that um, part of where my psychiatry training really comes in is how do you collect – a really detailed history of that person to really help answer that question, to mm-hmm. have that sense of, you know, what is the timeline of how these things unfolded, but also incorporating, like, who are you as a person? Who have you always been? Are some of these characteristics things that have always been part of you or right. have run in your family? Maybe you already struggled with anxiety or depression before a head injury. Maybe you were already, you know, in your 30s and a lot of people in their 30s get migraine headaches. Maybe it's not related to your head injury. Mm -hmm. So I think part of the art is really trying to tease these things apart and separate them to help the person better understand what's going on. And, you know, the biggest thing, how do we feel better? You know, how do we move forward? You know, it's funny because we don't necessarily always start from a baseline of being solid. I mean, right. uh, I deal with people all the time who I would say are pretty emotionally unstable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we just have to work with whatever realm we're at on that baseline, right? But you had mentioned uh, in the information that you sent to me about neurorehabilitation and how you work with that with someone with a brain injury or stroke, yep. vascular dementia, uh, encephalitis and other neurological diseases. What does that mean? Because neurorehabilitation sounds almost miraculous. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so what 
what path do you take to try to achieve any rehabilitation and and what does that look like for you? Sure. So tough question, but I'll try my best. So I think there are kind of two important terms when we talk about this. One is called neurorecovery, and that basically just means that after anything happens to you, a stroke, a brain injury, multiple sclerosis, a dementia, whatever it may be, your brain is naturally going to change over time after that event has happened. So, for example, after a stroke, your brain and body are going to have a natural course of recovery if you do nothing. Mm -hmm. If you don't do any kind of intervention at all, um, there will be some natural recovery. So the brain actually can make, we know now, new neural pathways, new connections. It might rewire things a little differently than they were before, but it has this capacity. And then the second term is called neuroplasticity, which is basically this idea that we as physicians or as patients or as providers can actually enhance that neurorecovery process, that there are things we can do to try to speed it up, to try to make more connections, to try to enhance healing. And so there are a lot of different ways that this can happen. There's technology, there's medication, there's therapy, there's different kinds of intervention. But we used to think that the brain couldn't grow back at all. We used to think the brain couldn't make new nerves. It couldn't make these new connections. And we're now realizing as more research comes out that that's actually not the case. And so the big goal is trying to promote this. How do we get someone healing faster, better, appropriately, get them into aggressive treatment and rehab early to really see what can be done? I love that because... As you just said, you didn't fully state this, but we used to think that was to- just children. Right, right, you absolutely. Know, only yeah. children could regrow brain cells and, you know, get better. That's exciting news. Yeah. Well, you know, I know that that probably works really well, especially for vascular dementia, because unlike Alzheimer's, vascular dementia basically affects where someone has had a stroke right. but wouldn't get worse over time unless they had other TBIs or something of that nature. So that's really hopeful on that front. Yeah, absolutely. Even, you know, and there is this research too going on in the areas of the dementias um, to try to see, you know, if there are certain types of cells we know we lose in dementia, certain types of brain tissue we know we're losing. Is there a way to slow down that process or is there a way to help promote that kind of cell to grow again or to replete itself or, you know, to come back. Um, And again, a lot of this is preliminary. One of the hardest things is a lot of this is being done in the research world. And it hasn't really crossed over to that point of you being able to go to your doctor and get these treatments in the clinic or have a pill or a treatment given. Most of this is still happening in research. So part of what we're trying to do is bridge that gap. Well, how exciting. We have it going on right here in Denver Yeah, at the hospital you work with 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 Dr. Holden and Mm -hmm. Dr. Potter and everybody trying to work on that. So when you're addressing the neuropsychiatric needs of a patient and you're trying to help them reach their goals and focus on what they want to achieve, how do you do that? What I mean, do, can you give me sort of an example of something that someone might pick as a goal and, and helping them figure out what that neuropsychiatric 
path might look like? Sure. Um, so I'll give you an example of, say, a young person. I see a lot of young people who are in their 20s who have had a traumatic brain injury and can just really derail your life. You have to leave school, work. There's a lot of isolation, a lot of just loss of friendships. You kind right. of realize that people aren't, you know, people don't stick with you the way that you hope they might. Um, so a goal, a really common goal for someone with a brain injury might be, I want to go back to work. Oh, um, okay. And so that would include a lot of different neurologic components. So often for that person, how might we reach that goal? We would get them neuropsychological testing. So we would get some really detailed assessment of you know, their memory, their ability to multitask, their language, how they interact with other people to help say, okay, this particular kind of job might be really hard for you now. Like you might really struggle with that. Nice. And so what are some accommodations or targets of memory therapy or cognitive therapy that we can do to really help you get back into the job world? Um, there might also be a medication that would go along with that, like maybe something to help with your attention, concentration, or memory to help you stay focused when you're at work. Um, it might also include your family being involved in helping just kind of continue that plan of being consistent, being on schedule, being organized to be able to keep your job. Um, so just really this kind of comprehensive approach, you know, um, making sure that you're mood, your sleep, all of those things are, you know, maintained so that you can go back to that job and be successful with it. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that same scenario for people with Alzheimer's? Absolutely. And I mean, I, I really try to, as I think, as best I can in my clinic. And I, I know that we try to conceive of it that way of, you know, what are your goals for yourself? What's really important to you? What What do you want out of your life? What matters most to you? Um, and, you know, I think if the earlier we ask those questions, the better we're going to do with the person and the family because then we're really asking the right questions, answering the right questions. And, you know, that's what I focus on in my work as well because we both believe very much in person-centered care. And you really can't care for someone if you don't know who they are. And they lose some of who they are along the way. And as you just aptly said, we have to focus on where they're going now and can we tweak these things just a little bit? Can we help them to get where they need to go um, by focusing on things they used to like to do or just things in their house that give us a clue that we could incorporate these incorporate these ideas as engagement um, and activity throughout the day to keep them focused. Absolutely. And I think it's also much more powerful if a goal comes from the person yes. themselves. They're so much more likely to engage in it, yes. to participate if it's really from their own lips. So part of what we really try to work on in psychiatry, we call it alliance, just building that sense of camaraderie, teamwork with the person. I always like to tell them, you know, you're the one in the driver's seat. Like, you're driving. Me and your family and everybody else are passengers. We're on your team. But, like, <laughs> you're steering the ship and, you know, and, and it's up to you. It's your brain. It's your body that's taking these medicines, that's doing these different things. So really having that person be so actively involved in their care. And that can become really difficult over time if memory and other things like that are really, really impacted. But I think trying to preserve that piece as long as humanly possible just makes makes a lot of difference. And really understanding who they are 
being in their space and and were they a person that you know used to ride bikes or they were a person that went hiking every week or they really cared about what they were putting into their bodies and and so on and so forth and i i utilized with a a client that had parkinson's that liked to used to he used to like to ride a bike and so i helped him with a, a youtube uh it's sort of one of those live gopro yeah, deals yeah. where he could sit on his bike and ride his bike and watch somebody who had done one of the virtual tours oh, nice. um, to try to get him back into the game. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how you help people really find themselves again. Sounds great. Carillon at Bellevue Station is a residential community enriching the senior living experience. Our community full of grandeur and elegance is located near Cherry Hills, Colorado. We offer independent living and personalized assisted living services and an intimate, caring neighborhood for our residents with Alzheimer's and other dementias. A beautifully appointed spacious apartment, chef-prepared meals, transportation services, and a team devoted to your safety and wellness are what awaits you when you reside at Carillon at Bellevue Station. Call 720-440-8200 or visit carillon at bellevuestation.com for more information. Okay, we're back, and I'm with Dr. Delia Bakeman, and I'm really glad to have you here because you have decided to take on a couple of specialties that are misunderstood. Often, we don't have as much information as we want about either of them, but the neuro psychological, psychiatric, behavioral, whatever you want to call it, and the psychiatric piece of how we are functioning and looking at if a person is showing impairment, where and how are they showing the impairment, and how can you best focus to to really help them be the best that they can be. Right. And like anything, our nutrition, our exercise. Dr. Potter told me a couple of months ago, uh, actually it was last October, uh, that brain health and gut health were connected. Mm -hmm. And I think we see that more and more often. And I really try to focus on that, but you do that as well. But you're really diving deep, looking at at people's backgrounds, and what what does health and wellness mean to them, and what does anxiety and depression and other types of mental illness? How does that all? play together? Does one affect the other? Right. Right. And I think, um, again, this goes back to that idea of we can, you know, you can go to a doctor's office, it's 0.5% of your time is actually spent in your doctor's office, right? Like the whole rest of your time is spent out in the world, living your life in your environment. And so what I don't want someone to do is come into the office and have me say, well, this is your, this is the diet, this is the exercise plan, this is you know, what you should be doing, go go out into your world and do that. You know, I think much more realistically, what I want is for people to create very achievable goals that make sense to them. So an example would be for diet. We talk a lot about the Mediterranean diet or the mind diet, which is a combination of Mediterranean eating 
and a diet called the DASH diet that's used for people who have heart disease. Um, and so we recommend that often, but for some people that might not be realistic. I actually just had a patient call me a little while ago and say, what can I drink on the Mediterranean diet? I feel like I don't have many options. And so just being able to be realistic and practical so that people can create diets or exercise regimens that are things they enjoy, foods they enjoy, you know, activities they enjoy, like you referenced with the biking. Right. Because that's what makes it that's what makes them do it. That what that's what makes it longitudinal and, you know, they keep up with it because something that again they feel like they built themselves, they'd picked something that they enjoyed. Yes. And uh, when I provide in-home assessments, I go into someone's home. I always look at what they are doing. I ask for a questionnaire based on their entire life. And then I put together a calendar with them. Mm -hmm. Same theory. Yeah. Because I could put together a calendar of engagement pieces, but if it's not of their making... They're not going to do it. Right. That piece of paper is going to get thrown away, just like when we go to the physical therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you deal with a lot of people with Alzheimer's as well. We talked about vascular dementia, which for all of you out there is a stroke, uh, and frontal temporal, uh, tough diseases. Mm -hmm. um, right now, I have a sister who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I have a brother who was diagnosed in 2007 with FTD. Wow. They're so different. And as I read information about you, you mentioned that there sometimes is a big overlap mm -hmm. in some of these different diseases and even disorders like PCA, posterior cortical atrophy, like yeah. uh, Dr. Pellick. And we're seeing more and more of that overlap. And that's hard. I, I think there are so many comorbidities in this game. Yep. And for my listeners out there, meaning there are more than one diseases at play, mixed diagnosis, could be anything else. It could be heart disease. It could be all, a lot of different things playing there. How do you make a diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And I think part of the reason that we're starting to see this um, increase in mixed diagnosis is also just that people are getting older. You know, our population is aging. We're starting to diagnose some of these things when people are in their 80s or 90s or late 70s. And by that time in your life, a lot of people have accumulated different kinds of diseases over time. Um, it can be really difficult to distinguish. Part of what I do is right when I see somebody, we do an assessment, and that includes memory testing. It includes getting all the history. And then we make a list of something called confounding factors. So we basically go down the list and say, these are all the possible things in your life that could, could be muddying the picture, making okay. this difficult. So, for example, you have sleep apnea and you're not wearing your machine at night. You have active depression, and that seems to be really untreated, and it's affecting your ability to exercise and get out there. You have blood pressure that's not well controlled, that's consistently running up. And we say, here's this, this list of other things that could be making memory worse. Go work on them for a few months. We're going to come up with a plan together of how we're going to try to address all of those things. 
so that we can come back. We can try to have as clean a picture as possible to say, okay, now that those things are better managed, let's repeat your memory testing. Let's repeat some of this. And if we're still having the same results, then, then we're much more likely dealing with a primary neurodegenerative disease, meaning one of the dementias or a progressive type of neurologic condition. Okay. So trying to really rule out some of those extra factors can become even more complicated if two of them are neurologic conditions, like you said. So right. a really common example is vascular dementia and Alzheimer's disease. They overlap with each other enormously right. um, because a bunch of people throughout their lifetime have um, had vascular changes in the brain from things like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And then they also have Alzheimer's, which is pretty common in our population. So you get this mixed picture, um, and those are a little more complex. So you are trying to build a multidisciplinary clinic around all of this, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And with that, you're bringing in other realms, PT, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, maybe even speech mm-hmm. um, and language. Yep. So you're working with uh, with folks from that department and psychology. How would any of those, let's break them down for just a second. So how does PT help? I can see where it would help with a person with, you know, a um, traumatic brain injury. Sure. But could it help with a person with Alzheimer's? Absolutely. Or FTD? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think physical therapy um, is, is really, there's not a great understanding in just kind of the general population of all the amazing things that a physical therapist can do. So they don't just deal with strength or recovery, you know, if you've injured yourself, like had a shoulder or neck or back injury. They do a beautiful job with gait and balance. So really helping people who are having trouble stumbling, who have a shuffling gait, who are having trips or falls. So helping with gait and balance. They're really, really excellent for dizziness and vertigo, which can be a common side effect um, from some of these neurodegenerative conditions. They can really help with endurance and strengthening. So building people's confidence and just being able to get out and walk and exercise consistently. So it sounds kind of silly, but some of us over time aren't walking at our best. Like we could actually really benefit from alignment and someone kind of breaking down our, our walking and our strength with us. And so they can really just get into so much detail um, and and we do see in frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease that there is more trouble with just coordination, with being able to walk and balance with falls. And so, again, you know, keeping someone really strong can also really memory-wise help them do better and function better. And how about speech and yes. language? So speech and language I use constantly, and we have just like a really excellent team at UC Health. So um, they have a a variety of things they do. So when you think of speech and language, um, kind of the classic thought of what they do is that they help you if you have trouble with your speaking. So if you, you know, are having trouble finding words, if you're saying the wrong words accidentally, or if over time your speech is getting softer, like in the Parkinson's diseases. Um, Or, you know, there are things like primary progressive aphasia where you actually lose language or lose the ability to have fluent language. And that's one part of what they do. They're also trained in swallowing. So if people who develop dementia start to have trouble with choking, swallowing, 
kind of using those muscles of the throat, they can help with that. But the thing that I use them the most for is actually something called cognitive or memory therapy. So speech therapists are additionally trained in this whole other realm of memory therapy, where it's basically using very practical skills and tools to help you build some of those neural networks in your brain. So they're really practical. They say, okay, what are you doing in your life? Are you still working? Okay, you're starting to have some dementia, so work has become a little tougher. Let's really get you organized in your home. Let's set up signs, calendars, phones, things to use, things to build on, things to practice, exercises to practice at home to really help keep your brain strong and healthy. This is so exciting Yeah, because I really didn't – you're the first person I've heard, um, and I've had many doctors from your clinic in here, talking about being able to implement information like this. Now, I say it a little bit different because I don't have the background you have. But I am imploring people just to not give up, to get back in the game. I would love to see how we could collaborate and how maybe I could use some of your thought and theory uh, to work with my clients at home. Yeah, Because Dr. Holden and Dr. Vaughn and everybody I've worked with, we always relate our work as you all give a diagnosis, and I teach people how to live with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is, I mean, this is phenomenal. I'm going to play this back a couple of times <laughs> because I really didn't understand that there was something that we could do when somebody had Alzheimer's or Parkinson's with memory loss, and it's progressive. Now, you know, we've got the big and loud with our friends with Parkinson's, and we can try to help them to be able to use their voice and their language when that is failing them. I think they have probably more exercises and and processes at their disposal right. than, say, people with Alzheimer's or FTD yeah. do, in, in my mind anyway. But I love that you are taking this really strong, holistic approach. And that's really what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a holistic approach in trying to help people get to either get back to where they were or find a new normal, which we're getting used to <laughs> a lot. Um, but that's that's really important what you just said. Absolutely. Do, do you find that um, other doctors are doing the same thing? Or do you find, like, do you feel like you're a person on an island by yourself? What... Where are, where are you in this process? I just need to, I'm trying to understand sure. because I love this. I love this. And I want to know how we can collaborate and focus more on this because uh, I'm really trying to get them to utilize what they can at home. Right. You know, to make a new cornhole game or use water bottles to, you know, bowl or whatever it is. I've got a zillion ideas for things like that, but I hadn't really thought about what you just said. So I think that it's really tough as doctors. We don't know what we don't know. And there are just limitless resources in the regions we tend to practice that I think sometimes we're just not tapped into. It's very easy as a physician to kind of stay in our small bubbles and to say, you know, these are the few people that we're going to refer to. And and. Part of what um, I've been trying to do because I'm, you know, I'm from Colorado originally, but I've been gone for over a decade now. I'm coming back. Is just I 
I spend a lot of time visiting rehabs in different parts of Colorado, meeting with different speech, physical, and occupational therapists, meeting with doctors at other hospitals or in other practices, community organizations like Alzheimer's Association, Brain Injury Alliance, Lewy Body Dementia Association, um, and just seeing what are other people doing, you know, what are resources they tap into, what what do they do exactly when I send a person to them, I, you know, which I think is really important. It's very easy for us to say, go to physical therapy. But if we don't really understand, you know, what is the physical therapist really doing? How are they breaking it down for the patient step by step? How do they look at them? How do they view them? You know, I think that it limits what we can offer the person. So something we're trying to do is now we've actually established a couple of these monthly meetings with a bunch of different people from different from different specialties, with speech, physical therapy, occupational, community members. And, and we talk. We talk about either a particular patient and how we would all see them differently and what we might all think about it. Or we talk about, you know, what are some resources or what are thoughts we all have or, you know, what's a new article that came out that we all could – share with each other. I think just building that community can be really, really powerful. Oh, you are you are singing my heart, I'm telling you right now. I love that because I think prior to, I would say, 10 years ago, this was really a foreign concept. Like you said, somebody would come into your office for just a, you know, 15, 20 minutes or something, and, and you would try to gather what you could and make a decision right. <laughs> based on what a family member saying right. to a huge degree, right? Yeah. And that person feeling like the doctor only talked to, to my family member or what have you. But what you just said was so powerful to send someone somewhere. And how are they working with the person that you just sent them? Yeah, that, that feedback. I love that. And I'm just curious you know, how do you, I want to talk about that a little further, but how do you balance a patient load mm-hmm. when you are giving this extra time? Yeah, <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a hard balance. More and people I think, are being diagnosed. Right, right. Your, your, your clinics are six to eight months out. Yeah, and, and, you know, you don't get paid for this stuff, right? You don't get paid for these extra meetings or reaching out or making these kinds of connections. They're not built into your job description. But I think that what I found over time is that if I do even one one hour meeting with a group and I can go and see their rehab and see what they do, meet all the people in person, shake their hand, hear their mentality, then like for the next years, we have a relationship, we have a connection so that I can so much more easily just shoot them a quick email or a text message saying, hey, you know, I have someone for you. And, you know, can we kind of communicate back and forth about that person? So I think that there is an upfront amount of time that you do have to spend that is that is an extra hours that is kind of outside of the clinic schedule. But I think the payoff is just enormous. And that mm-hmm. list of resources grows and grows and people reach out to you and say, hey, you know, I know that you're doing this. I have a good person for you. You know, it's just amazing the network and the web that can be created just by some of these pretty simple just, you know, going and introducing yourself and saying hi to someone. I couldn't agree more. And you and I don't know each other that well, but Dr. Holden connected us. Yeah. So I'm going to take a minute and kind of explain something to you. Sure. So uh, I worked with the Alzheimer's Association for many years before starting my own company. 
And I go into people's homes, I meet them, and I can tell them what stage their person is at in Alzheimer's. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can see that, and I, I know frontal temporal pretty well, and I work with Parkinson's. Well, I had Benzie Kluger on my show, and he mentioned that he was trying to put together some type of a big team, a family team, and, you know, a care provider team and all of that. And I said to him, that's that's what I do. You know, that I work with people on the side of, of yeah. the community that he was talking about. So when I started sending my reports that I write from the in-home assessments that I provide to the doctors, the feedback was phenomenal because I could show them into somebody's entire life. Absolutely. And go back and look at what the questionnaire information provided and then send that information, uh, how they responded when I asked them questions. This is what stage I think they're at. So I don't diagnose, but I can tell what stage somebody's at. And the doctors just loved seeing that information. And it really created this partnership that has been phenomenal. And so now I get a lot of patients from UCH Neurology. And when they need help, the docs send them to me. Right. And I just get such a big kick out of that because I'm not on the medical side, although I've read a lot of books and I understand a lot of information. But that's what I do to try to provide that information. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. We're back, and I have Dr. Delia Bakeman in the studio today, and I love love, love, that you look at and appreciate and just spent a couple of minutes telling us how important it is for you to utilize people on other teams and to, you know, help everybody kind of, when you said, I ask everybody to look at maybe one patient and how we all come at it from a different way, what a concept. (laughs) Wow. And we have shared a couple patients here recently that would be phenomenal to have feedback from other people because sometimes we 
we don't always get the easiest patients. Right. Um, they don't really come willingly. And the family's trying to explain something. And often we get so much fraud and abuse and things that happen that when we get a, a family that's actually really caring, sometimes it's hard to recognize them, yeah, you know, because yeah. maybe they're just being assertive and somebody else might see it a wrong way. So, you know, that's such a big piece. And I was telling you, um, Dr. Kluger, before he left and moved on, uh, he was really interested in the community piece and how that could all play together. And that's how I began teaching classes. I started with the Parkinson's group, but then I got to know Dr. Holden a little bit better. And uh, they were sending Alzheimer's people and the Parkinson's people to the same class I was providing every month. Sure. It wasn't working because yeah. they have different needs. Right. So I wanted to split it apart and both sides. Then it was Christina Vaughn and Samantha Holden both agreed that, that I could teach classes for both. And I really like that because it's two different worlds. It's two different ways of redirection. It's two different ways of the memory loss. And I just think that that's really phenomenal that that matters to you. Are you getting good feedback when you want to do things like that? Can I be a part of that? <laughs> of course you can. You can always join us. I'm all by myself. My husband comes home from work and I'm like this to him all day long. And he just says, wow, you're wound up. And I said, well, I'm by myself. Right, right. Absolutely. I don't have anybody to share ideas with or I'm just trying to brainstorm how to help a family be as effective as they can. Yeah. And I can give them great communication skills all day long, but when that person that has a diagnosis isn't communicating well, and that takes it back to something you said earlier in our conversation about having that, having a good conversation with somebody now so that you can actually work with them well when you want to work with right. them and and try to figure out a good path for their recovery or their journey, whatever right. whatever that will be. And I just don't ever want people to give up. I want them to continue to try to live their best life and have quality of life and have their family maintain their dignity at every step that they can. And you're working very hard at that. Yeah. You know, I think that the Feedback has really been phenomenal. I mean, I, the funny thing is I think everybody wants to do this. It's just, you know, the basics of life are always getting in the way. Everybody's busy, you know, time, money, running around, trying to to make space for this kind of thing. But I think once you start doing it and start participating in it, you really recognize how powerful and special it is. I think it also really helps decrease burnout for People who care for other people, for physicians and practitioners and um, family members, when you start having these kind of group discussions, because it, it really um, – it's exciting. It feels positive. It gives a sense of purpose back. It reminds you like, oh, yeah, this is why I became a doctor. This is why things really do matter to me. And, you know, I, I think that there's just a lot of reward that comes for everybody when you have these kinds of conversations. I hope that we can get to a place where I, I would be just thrilled to pieces if Dr. Potter's Leukine study comes to fruition. I, I, I so want that so badly. But um, if we could get to a place where we can 
help people with Alzheimer's and FTD because right now there aren't very many medications that can help that. But how, how can you help with the underlying things, the comorbidities that I spoke of earlier? How can you, can you make a difference there? I mean, if you, if you actually get someone in the, in the hospital or in your office and maybe you can run some tests and you can figure something out, is there a way that, that you can take the edge off for them? We try everything that we can through just holistic opportunities and, and uh, communication skills and redirection and everything else. But sometimes we get those folks with Lewy body and, and such or Alzheimer's with whatever extra things they have loaded on there. Yeah. Is, is it possible sometimes that you're able to affect some change to give people quality of life? And, and we don't like using medications if we don't have to, but sometimes we have to. Right, right. I think that there... Yes, there there is definitely room to improve on things. You know, I think it can be really tough. But what's so interesting is you could get one person, you could have a picture of their brain, and it could be the same brain for 10 different people, and they could look completely different. Really? You know, and um, the way they present, the severity of their dementia, like how bad it is, the symptoms and other effects that they have from it could be completely different dependent on the person and the family. So what we really try to do is focus on um, you know, like you said, quality of life. So if somebody comes to me with Alzheimer's disease and say it's moderate to severe, you know, like it's more advanced, um, again, we really, I really try to go down that list of do you have all of the family supports that you need in place? Do you have joy and purpose in your life? If not, can we hook you into a day program? Is there a senior place near your house? Is there a silver sneakers class we can get you into? Music therapy. Exactly. Music therapy, a book club, chess, golf, whatever you used to love to do. Can we get some joy in your life and implement that? And then, you know, next on to kind of diet, exercise, lifestyle, and then thinking through the medicines. Do you need something to get you into a regular sleep pattern? Do you need a medication to help with depression, anxiety, or paranoia, psychosis, mood symptoms that are coming from this disease? Um, do you need something to help better control other medical issues to make you feel more healthy and energized? Um, we do all of those things first. And I think you can make huge differences even just w- with all of that. If you can make some impact there, day-to-day life, quality of life can be very different if all of those things are well-controlled. And then, you know, once those things are dealt with, thinking about, you know, what are the research trials right now? What are the approved medications or treatments like the different kinds of therapies that we can think about for you for Alzheimer's or frontotemporal dementia? You know, we do have some things on the horizon right now. We have pills that can basically slow down a little bit the process of the disease but not stop it or reverse it. Um, you know, and how do we incorporate those in appropriately without side effects in a way that people can tolerate? So it's just kind of, again, thinking about that whole picture. But I think it can be a pretty powerful difference. There are people I have with moderate to severe Alzheimer's who can still travel, who who are still working or doing some volunteer work on the side, who still have some of this quality of life that's preserved because these other things are so well controlled. I have a difficult question for you. Yeah. And maybe there's no answer. 
I want to preface this, but we can try and brainstorm a little bit. Sometimes we get the person a little too late. Mm-hmm. Family members would just beg for some recourse, something that's going to help. Yeah. But we can't, they didn't have open conversations with the person from the beginning. Now we have all kinds of things going on. Yeah. You know, you could have a psychosis, you could have delusions. They won't get the help and families need the help. And I have a lot of those. I have a lot that we're in the later stages now. The symptoms are fairly severe. I have no, nothing at my disposal. Yeah. I If I can't work with redirection skills and uh, try to learn who they were and use person-centered things, there's only, usually I can go a pretty long way with that. But I have a couple of families that are really, really struggling. What do, what do we say? What can we say to families? I can't turn my back on them. I try to help them. You know, I try to help them. But it's, it's, uh, it's very hard when that person's not cooperative. And there's, we have restrictions with, you know, you can't have chemical restraints. You have to tell someone if you're giving them medication. There's some drugs you can crush in somebody's ice cream or coffee or something, and there's some you can't. Right. What do you say to people when it feels like they're running into walls every time they turn around? It's, yeah. it's my day. <laughs> I know. I, I wish I wish we had better answers for these situations because they are so painful just for so painful for the person and the family. It's just so, so difficult to see someone that you love so much, just a completely different person and, you know, saying hurtful things or doing things that are hurting themselves, you know, they're, they're so such complicated situations that can arise when this disease progresses, especially if you've had very little understanding or education of what's happening. It can be really hard to come in later. Um, I don't think there's a perfect answer. I think that we do, at those stages, tend to really go into the quality of life conversation much earlier. Right. And you know, be thinking about are there, you know, is there room for a medicine that's just going to be for relaxation? Is there room for medicine that just helps with pain or with other issues like trouble with urination or trouble with, you know, just are there things that we can do that are really just more for comfort um, as opposed to some of these more aggressive research trials or things like that, they're really probably not going to be tolerated by the person. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, that's when it can get really complicated. A lot of families know this who have people with more advanced dementia, but that's also when you really do want to have some help with kind of legal, financial, other paperwork, things set up to help you, you know, insurance set up to to really help you so that if that person does need to be in a safer space or if you want to keep them at home, how can you do that in a way that is, you know, safe and you're able to for for the person and the family? These are so we tend to have more of those kinds of conversations, you know, if right. we're getting someone in that stage. But I think tough. I think you answered that beautifully because that is where I go as well. Yeah. So I try 
the best I can to provide education. Maybe if they'll let me come into the home and do a family class. Right. So once a month, I have a class through UCH, and uh, I attack those issues. I try to get into the minutia of what people have in their homes. And one of those classes is about all the legal and financial issues that you might face, power of attorney and things like that. Managing your emotions is another class. Yeah. Um, how to work with the ADLs. These are all free, by the way, and I get people from all over the world on these calls, and they're the first Wednesday of every month through UCH, and I uh, provide the class. And uh, I really try to help them with understanding and really how the brain function and when they're seeing impairment, you know, how the brain is supposed to work and when it's impaired, what they will see. That gives a certain amount of empathy and compassion. And if I can provide a virtual experiment too as well to let them have the experience of what it's kind of like to have the disease, it gives people a lot more compassion and yeah. and understanding. But then the very next thing that I ask, and, and you just said it, I'll say it a little bit different way, but when did, when have they reached a point where the scope of care is more than they can actually handle? Right. And and when do they need to make a decision and maybe break a long-held promise, you know, about the care that they yeah. have? Because we have so many caregivers. I have my Caregiver Nation listeners, but we have so many caregivers that become ill before the person that they're caring for because of the stress. Absolutely. So it's really important to try to find those answers for them as best we can. And those are some of the things. Every other month I have a deeper class, even yeah. how to get through the holidays and yeah. and all kinds of things. And I'm so grateful to Dr. Holden and, and Dr. Vaughn for allowing me to do those classes. It really, I think, makes a difference. I'm I'm hoping that you're going to have more and more physicians that are open to your way of thinking. I think UCH is really progressive and setting the bar. I'm I'm proud to be a part of the team uh, because I just think that that is so important. And you work. You said you work with the Alzheimer's Association and the brain injury and so on and so, so forth. So I just want to point out um, that the Alzheimer's Association, and you can say what they do for you, but they provide lists if someone calls into their helpline. So you can find a physician. You can find a, an attorney. Is that how you work with them as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I often have people um, call in to them and basically say, like, listen, this is my situation. You know, my family member was just diagnosed or I was just diagnosed. This is the area that I live in. Um, you know, can you kind of help guide me through your website and all of these different kinds of services you offer and um, just get that, that little bit of one-on-one -on -one as an intro to what they do so that the family can then understand how best to use all of, you know, they just have so many different kinds of resources, mm -hmm. how to really use those resources. And the helpline. I managed the helpline for yeah. seven years. Yeah. So folks out there, please call into the helpline. They have the ability to change the language into 200 different uh, variables. Uh, so you can certainly find help there. I want to know what you do to have fun and to have self-love and self-care when you are working with such difficult situations. Yeah, so I, I think about this a lot. I think we have to to maintain our sanity. You know, I think, <laughs> I think that... Um, 
what I've learned is that I, you know, I just remember really poignantly, poignantly being in medical school and one of my very first patients I had dying in a code in front of me and going into the hall and crying and a resident coming to me and saying, you need to like have a tougher skin, like you need to have a thicker skin. And I think in medicine, sometimes there really is that belief, this kind of black and white vision of you, you can't care, you can't take it home with you, you can't take it too personally, or you're going to burn out, it's going to be too difficult. And what I've learned over the years is that that's not the case. It doesn't have to be black and white. You can very much, we're human. Part of our humanity is what helps us connect to our patients and the people we see. So I can see someone and I can feel with them. I can have empathy and compassion and I can hold that with them in the room. And um, But I try to, you know, again, give ownership back to the person and the family. So I try not to you know, take too much on and say, well, I'm the person diagnosing them and curing them and it's all on me. You know, I try to really right. make, put it back on the family and the person and here's all the things we can work on together. Again, that idea of you're the driver, I'm in the passenger seat, I'm going to help you along. And I think that's really helped over the years, not feeling an excessive amount of responsibility, understanding that people will make their decisions and live their lives and I can try to help as best I can. Um and then, you know, coming home and really just taking a lot of time for myself, I really try not to watch TV shows that are medical or, <laughs> you know, negative or violent. I really do try to just kind of focus on happier comedies, more joyful things. I love to dance. I love to play tennis and stay active and see friends. And my family lives here, too. So I think just, you know, keeping all those other parts of my life really active really, really helps. And I think, you know, just not trying to carry some of those things with me to the extent that it's it's debilitating for me. Oh, I love that. And if I can offer you some hope, I've been working with people with these four different areas of, of dementia diseases for 20 years. And I'm still yeah. <laughs> still going strong. I'm still standing. I'm still pretty positive. I try very hard every day to just make it a new day. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and you have a dog. You're a dog. Oh, person. absolutely. Yeah. The, and I mean, honestly, she's a lifesaver. It gets you know, it gets you out of the house. Happy smile at the end of the day every time. So absolutely. Oh, I love it. Will you come back and visit us sometime? Of course, absolutely. Anytime well, you'd like. I love your positive outlook. I like what you're doing, and I'd like to check in with you in a couple of months and see how you're making progress in this area. That sounds great. Well, can I call you Delia? Of course, absolutely. Delia, you're the bomb. I love it, and I would love to have you back. So thank you, everybody in Caregiver Nation, for everything you do. And stay with us, stay strong, and I'll see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.